When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Spurs knocked Chelsea out of the League Cup. Surprises galore to start the Premier League season. And will anyone challenge Liverpool? John Aloisi and Simon Hill join David Weiner this week for a big episode of the Gegen Pod, including a look at some of the important issues currently in the sport here in Australia. Yes, hi everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Gagan Pod. David Wiener with you once again. We have a lot to talk about today and to do that we've got two great panellists with us. John Aloisi and Simon Hill. Welcome back to both of you. John, to you. We saw you on the weekend. The Premier League is in absolutely fine form. How good is it? It's unbelievable at the moment, Dave. They're just not only all the goals, some uh, bad mistakes from individuals, but also just the, the tension in the games and, um, you know, the Man United game, the last kick of the game, getting a penalty um, and the quality, you know, Liverpool-Arsenal, that was a, a quality game of football. So the, the football so far has been uh, amazing. Yeah, it's been a treat. It's been an absolute pleasure to watch and long may it continue. Simon, great to see you again. This feels good. This feels right. Lovely to be talking to you on a podcast once again. Good to see you, Dave. How are you, mate? Good to see you as well, Johnny. Good to see you, Simon. Love cool. your top. Daka. <laughs> I've got a few of these rock tops, but uh, yeah, this is the Aussie one. <laughs> awesome stuff. Well, speaking of how I am, I've watched Chelsea go out on penalties in the Carabao Cup this morning to Spurs. Jose you Mourinho okay, Dave? Gets... You all right, mate? Ah, oh, well, probably better than Frank Lampard is at the moment after having had a bit of a set two with Jose Mourinho on the sideline when they were one nil up only to see that the master get one over the apprentice on a penalty shootout to get through to the quarterfinals. The Spurs look to break that trophy drought that dates back to 2008. Interesting times for Chelsea, but I think the, the most interesting bit about this game, gents, was a second-half incident where Jose Mourinho not only showed is he still very quick-witted, but he's got a great turn of pace chasing Eric Dyer up the tunnel when he disappeared and Tottenham had to play with 10 men for a couple of minutes. What do you make of that, John? Well, supposedly he disappeared because he needed to have a toilet break, which was, uh, it's very unusual. You very rarely see it. But um, I was involved in a game when I was at Osasuna. We're playing Atletico Madrid at their stadium. And our defender, midway through the game, sprinted off to go to the toilet for a number two. And we, we turned around and we didn't know where he was. It was uh, sort of a shock. All we could hear were the South Americans losing it and going, just get him to his pants. <laughs> do <laughs> what you have to do. Yeah, it was, um, yeah, it was laughable after, but during the game, when you're under the pump, it is, it's not a funny um, situation to be in, that's for sure. Wasn't, yeah. wasn't it Max Crocombe, uh, the uh, Brisbane Raw goalkeeper now, who... Uh, took a, a number one actually on the pitch or at the side of the pitch during his days uh, with Salford City. I think he got in a fair bit of trouble for that, which he apologised <laughs> afterwards. But I, I guess um, the quote from Mourinho afterwards was was pretty prescient, wasn't it? He said he had to go and I knew he had to go. And when you've got to go, you got to go. <laughs> well, D- Dyer said he wasn't very happy, but 
there was nothing I could do about it, really. So there you go. Um, pretty big moment for Spurs, though, because this was the game, John, that um, Mourinho basically gave up on in the pregame. They've obviously got a Europa League um, qualifier to make the group stages on Friday, basically 48 hours later against Maccabi Haifa. So this is a massive potential momentum changer for Spurs. Did he really give up on it, Dave? Do we believe Mourinho, everything he says in uh, pre-match? Uh, look, the great spinster gave up uh, on it. He, he actually rested Kane, I get that. But the, you look at the squad that he's got now, he can rotate players. Um, he went to a back five uh, this morning. Um, but he's still got quality going forward. And, uh, and you know, I think that they're actually looking good. We saw him against Southampton. They were very good in that second half. We also saw him uh, on the weekend against Newcastle. They should have actually won by six or seven goals. Mm. I think they're in a good moment. I know they've got a lot of games. Um, so... Their next game in the Europa League is a big one for them. But um, I can only see them improving, especially when you get Bale fit. Reguillon started this morning, looked good, set up the goal. Um, I think they're good signs there for Spurs. Johnny, I wanted to ask you about uh, Deli Alley. Deli Alley, there looks, uh, those, there's a lot of speculation in the UK that he might be on his way out of Tottenham, which uh, sort of surprises me a wee bit. It does, especially when you see that um, that documentary on Spurs. You can see that the, Mourinho's got a soft spot for Deli Alley. So I don't know what's happened there. I still think he's got a lot of quality. I think that he's uh, one of their best players. When you get Deli Alley in form, you know he's going to win your football games. Um, but Mourinho the other day said that he hopes that he's going to stay. Now, we have to wait and see. Um, but if PSG come knocking, I'm sure that Deli Alley will leave. A big momentum changer for, for Spurs, whether it's with Deli Alley in the future or not. Most of their attacking players, Bergwijn, Moura, they both stepped up well today. Even Ndombele, uh, he looks like he's building a little bit of momentum in midfield. But the momentum, Simon, is not with Chelsea. Uh, your thoughts on Frank Lampard's start to a very interesting season for the Blues? Yeah, <laughs> well, defensively, obviously, they've still got a few <laughs> issues, to say the least. Um, Thiago Silva, I did always wonder about that signing. Look, Thiago Silva's a, a wonderful player uh, and has played at the top level for many years, both for club and country. But, you know, he didn't really want to leave PSG um, when it was clear that they didn't want him anymore. Obviously, it's, you know, the Premier League is very attractive for him, but... It's a very quick, very physical league. The French league is very different, and I think he's going to have to adapt uh, quickly. And, of course, the, the other problem that Frank Lampard has, has got that you'll know very well is that his, uh, his keeper is not exactly inspiring confidence in, in the rest of, uh, of the back line. Um, now, Lampard has you know, put his figuratively arm around his shoulder and said he's still a great goalkeeper. He needs me, you know, needs me to have confidence in him. So he's clearly trying to sort of boost him up, but yeah, it's a tough time. I think for for all the, you know, the the, the exciting money that he spent further up the pitch in terms of Kai Havertz and, and Timo Werner, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, I think it's that defence that is still a concern, <laughs> says the Manchester City fan. <laughs> hey, <laughs> well, that's we'll a story. <laughs> we'll, we'll just warm me up. We'll get to that. John, I was absolutely blown away by a stat this week that said um, in the two years that Lampard's been the coach at Chelsea, that Chelsea have conceded more goals from corners than anyone. You'd only conceded the second least amount of corners out of anyone in the competition. From a, do you think it's a personnel issue or it is a coaching issue? And with this personnel, is Lampard capable of solving it? 
It's a little bit of both, Dave, because uh, when you look at it and if it keeps on happening and there's different individuals that uh, keep on making those mistakes, then it's, uh, it's a coaching issue because, look, you can practice set pieces in certain ways. Players hate doing set pieces in training. They're so important, but they hate it. Um, so, you know, can you make it a, a little bit more that uh, you're playing a game and you go live straight after a set piece instead of like stop, start all the time? Mm. Um, they're, they're definitely the set piece that they conceded against West Brom. Uh, Alonso went to sleep. You know, that, that, that's, that's schoolboy. When you think about it, he's, he's watching the ball. He allows his runner to get off of him and he's getting a tap in there. I don't think the mistakes they made at the back the other day were so much structural. They were more individual errors. So Thiago Silva tripping over the ball. Marcos, uh, Marcus Alonso heading the ball back into midfield on the first goal and they get caught in the counter. And then the last one on the set piece. I saw good signs in the West Brom game. I actually thought that Lampard um, did well to make a change like he did at halftime. He, what he said at halftime must have worked because, you know, to come from 3-0 down away from home with a team that sits deep, the Guardiola spoke about how hard it is to break down teams mm. that sit deep with five at the back, four in the midfield and one up top. And, um, and Chelsea did well to get a draw out of that. So I still think there's positive signs for, for Chelsea moving forward as well. I think, I think the other thing, Dave, is uh, interestingly, because he had a year last year with the transfer embargo, so he couldn't bring players in, you know, he developed a lot of, uh, of good young local talent or, or helped them along. And it was those three guys mm-hmm. who got the goals, yeah. Mason Mount, Callum Hudson-Odoi and Tammy Abraham, um, that got them out of jail. I'm not saying it was, it was those three in, in their entirety, but, you know, sometimes the headlines are grabbed by the big overseas uh, money signings. Um, and sometimes people forget that uh, there's some good young local kids as well that can make a contribution. Yeah, part of me wonders uh, whether the pressure has mounted on Lampard with the signings, whether he was that far off with the local players last year anyway, that maybe just needed a couple of defensive or central reassurances. But now he's got all the attacking cavalry and he's got the pressure on him. Um, Ben Shirwell was an important in today for Chelsea, but Emerson in place of Marcus Alonso, who was hooked after getting the hairdryer from Lampard on the weekend, John. Uh, Emerson was just as culpable for Chelsea's equalizer, uh, conceding the equaliser to Spurs. So uh, Ben Shewell showed his importance this morning there too. Will either Spurs or Chelsea uh, be in that top four race going forward? We will wait and see. But uh, moving back to the Premier League, just some first impressions off the back of Liverpool and Arsenal. A really, a really terrific game uh, on Tuesday morning, uh, our time, where um, I want to ask you, John, in terms of progress, and you mentioned you like what you're seeing with Spurs, you like what you're seeing with Chelsea, but what about, are you liking what you see from Mikel Arteta's Arsenal? Are they the team on a solid uh, trajectory and path? Yes, definitely. I still think they're a bit of a way off. When you look at Liverpool, um, I still think Man City, once they get it right, and they will get it right this season, they have a few issues at the back. But um, I still think Arsenal, are, the gap's still there. Uh, whether they can push for a top four, I think they've got the, the quality now. Um, and there were good signs. In the first half against Liverpool, though, Let's be honest, Liverpool dominated. Uh, Arsenal weren't even at the races. They scored that goal probably the only time they were able to play through Liverpool's press and they went down the other end and Robertson, um, individual error, you know, cost them a goal. But um, in the second half when Danny Ceballos went on, Mm. I think the game changed. And uh, so, uh, look, I I think an Arsenal team of the past would have folded a lot quicker they showed good signs that they they still believe in what they're doing and they still believe in what Arteta's trying to do. 
All right, Simon. Truth time. <laughs> Is anyone going to challenge Liverpool? Hmm. <laughs> I'm not sure it's going to be us <laughs> on the strength of that display against Leicester. Uh, I think it's going to be difficult. I think Liverpool, you know, that they showed in that uh, game against Arsenal, even though they fell behind. And I, st- I think they've got a couple of defensive issues. And I think they, they look quite as solid uh, as last year. Virgil van Dijk has started the season uh, slowly. They are still struggling to, to keep clean sheets. But... They're relentless, you know, that, that grinding machine of Liverpool. Uh, they just run over the top of teams. They're uh, superior strength, speed, physicality, mentality. Uh, and again, they did it, you know, against Arsenal, even, even though they fell behind to Lacazette's goals. So I think they're by far the, 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 the favourites to retain their crown. Um, Manchester City will probably run them closest, but, uh, <laughs> you know, it. Even at this early stage of the season, City are already three points behind. You know, another loss and all of a sudden the pressure is massive because Liverpool just don't lose games that certainly haven't done for the last, you know, 18 months, two years. So, yeah, it's going to be difficult for every, anybody to catch them. Yeah, that's the thing, Simon. You, you actually look at the uh, the schedule and you go, where are Liverpool going to lose a game? Uh, <laughs> that, that you, yeah. you just can't see it at the moment. It can change. We know that football can change very quickly. A couple of injuries here and there. I think Fabinho has been exceptional. Like at the back against Chelsea, he was uh, brilliant the way he uh, controlled Timo Werner. But also in the midfield the other day, you, you talk about physicality. The way he just goes, gets across the pitch and covers when the fullbacks go forward and just breaks up the play. And, and, you know, they didn't get caught too many times on the counter. And, and you think about Arsenal, their strength is really with um, their players up top to actually counter him. William was unseen. Aubameyang had a quiet game. Uh, Lacazette was the one that actually probably caused them the, the most issues. He had that one-on-one in the second half. And you talk about their, their defensive frailties. I still think that they're lined sometimes. They're not dropping at the right time. Or the fullback is a little bit deeper than the centre-backs. Um, but in saying that, on the ball, they were just amazing in that first half. It was just uh, great to see. I think, you know, Fabinho, I remember when he arrived at the start of last season and I thought, gee, this guy's going to kill it in the Premier League. And it didn't quite work out from last season. Sometimes it takes foreign players a little while to, to adjust. And now he's sort of got that responsibility and he knows what the Premier League is about. And, of course, with Thiago Alcantara now having tested positive for, mm. for the coronavirus as well, you know, he's, he's got a really key role to play for Liverpool, certainly over the next couple of months. Um, and, you know, Diogo Jota comes in from Wolves and scores on debut, slots in like he's, you know, I know he played off the bench, but slots in like he's been there for, for years. So it's a pretty well-oiled machine at the moment to Anfield. And, um, yeah, I, I think it's going to take a very, very good side to stop them this season. I'm not sure the Premier League has that team at the moment. Mm, yeah, that's no, scary because they've the old the old Liverpool where everyone asked, would they have the motivation this year? They've just picked up where they where they left off, and you've got those other elements that you just discussed. So, yeah, good luck to the chasing pack. Maybe October eighteen is the day, John. That's the Merseyside derby against Everton. Could we get to that point with both teams undefeated? We asked a, a poll on our Facebook page uh, on on Wednesday, who or Tuesday, sorry, um, who's been most impressive to start the season out of Liverpool, Everton, um, Aston Villa as well and uh, Liverpool got the nod but Everton were not far behind in that question with Leicester in there as well and what have you made of Carlo Ancelotti you tipped big things John before the season and uh, 
did you expect them to hit the ground running like this? Before I move on to Everton, and uh, I don't want to disrespect Aston Villa supporters, but they beat Sheffield United and they beat Fulham. <laughs> they played two games. Let's not get carried away. They haven't away conceded yet. a goal. We've got to give credit where credit's due. They haven't conceded yeah, a goal. Yeah. Uh, look, I, I'm glad that Aston Villa, because they're a massive club and you want to see them doing well. But um, Everton, yeah. Look, I, I did expect them to actually improve uh, on last season, that's for sure. And, and we did say that um, they will be a dark horse to, to make uh, European positions. They still haven't been tested, tested yet. Um, I thought on the weekend they grinded out that result against Palace because it, they found it hard, especially that second half. I thought Palace, um, you know, were very good structurally. They, they made it uh, hard for uh, James Rodriguez to get on the ball and, and the likes. But, you know, James doesn't need much space. You know, to that, that first goal that they set up for Calvert-Lewin between him and Coleman um, it was brilliant. Mm. I, I actually think their midfield balance is good now with Alain um, in there. Um, and the Kure, he's he's a very good signing for them. The way he actually, um, I don't know if anyone saw it, but uh, they were getting caught on the counter uh, with Zaha, and he's one of the quickest players, and the Kure just chased him down. And you thought, well, you know, in the past, the, he, Everton would have got caught out in one of those situations. So they're strong. It, uh, I think they will push for European positions. Can they topple Liverpool? Well, why not? Because it's a derby. I know there's no crowd there, but uh, a one-off game, they, they probably can... Uh, hurt Liverpool, but uh, we'll wait and see. Still a couple of weeks to go for that one. It adds a good flavour, Simon, though, because if you look at last year, um, you know, you had Wolves, you had Sheffield United, that maybe Sheffield United will not be amongst it this year, but it's great to have a joker in the pack. Um, do you think Everton can sustain this, though? That's what I'm most intrigued by. Is it a flash in a pan, or can they sustain it? Well, uh, you know, obviously, is their squad depth um, as deep as as Liverpool or Man City in terms of not just numbers but but quality? Probably not. Uh, I don't think anybody expects them to actually win the Premier League title. Probably not even Everton fans. But uh, can they challenge for you know top four? Certainly top six. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean, for me, the the signing of the season so far. And yes, I know it's only three games, so we're you know we're tongue-in-cheek a little bit, but James Rodriguez, I mean, this guy's a world-class talent, uh, all right? It's, you know, not wanted in Spain, but it surprises me, and I don't mean any disrespect to Everton because they're a great club and a big club, a historic club as well. But I would have thought that somebody, maybe at the next, you know, the upper echelons of European football would have gone, James Rodriguez is a player that really we should be taking a gamble on if he's not wanted uh, by Real Madrid, because he's a terrific talent and he's shown that. He's been their missing link. Um, and, you know, the, he's, uh, Ancelotti has also brought the best out of Calvert-Lewin as well. Mm. Um, he scored uh, five goals already, I think. Um, so they, they look pretty good, Everton. And as Johnny said, you know, Ducouré and Alain in midfield, they look to have a very good, strong spine. Um, and I think they could go pretty close to uh, challenging for the top four this season. Well, I mean, they, he, James signed as much for Ancelotti as he did for Everton, if not more. John, what, what makes, you've, you, you mean, you, we've watched Carl Ancelotti closely in the Champions League over the last couple of years as well. What, what makes him um, the perfect man for James? What makes him the perfect man for Everton right now? What's his magic touch? Look, we know that he's uh, organised as uh, as a coach and he's got that experience. But, uh, you know, I, I've read his book 
uh, and also other uh, hearing about players that are played under him. They love Ancelotti. They 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 really do. They, they, they he's like a, a father figure for him. He's um, he's got that soft touch with them. Uh, he very rarely gets angry. He knows how to get the best out of his players. Um, and James Rodriguez had him at Real Madrid, had him at Bayern Munich. So he knows what uh, you know what buttons he needs to push to get the best out of James. And and James knows that as well. That's why he signed for Everton. Uh, again, like Simon said, you know we're not disrespecting Everton, but I mm. think that Rodriguez could have gone to another you know, big club either in Italy or somewhere like that. But um, he's decided to go with Ancelotti because he sees he probably uh, the project that they've got in place. They want to be challenging for European positions. They want to be challenging for top four. And I think if they keep their majority of the players fit, and I mean they're starting 11 players, I think they've got enough to push for that top four. You could you could say the same, Johnny, about Ancelotti that, that we just talked about with Rodriguez. I mean, you look at his record; he wins trophies. He's, he's managed, coached you know massive clubs around Europe, um, and yet again, and I, I stress I don't mean any disrespect to Everton, but you know he, he's he's at a club that is probably at the moment in terms of where they are in the pecking order, they're sort of you know one tier behind the upper level. Um, so it's it, maybe that's going to work in Everton's favour. They've, they've clearly got a lot to prove, both coach and some of those players. And uh, I think it's a terrific move to bring Hamas in. I, I, maybe he's mates with Yerry Mina. Maybe that's that's yeah. what, what <laughs> it's possible. <laughs> but, you, but you think about their starting eleven players now. You've got uh, uh, Digne, the, the left back, who's uh, ex Barcelona. Uh, Yari Mina, ex-Barcelona, right? They weren't starting 11 players. Mm -hmm. uh, Gomez in the midfield, Barcelona. James Rodriguez, Real Madrid. Um, you know, Rich Alson, Brazilian international. Yeah, you've got some quality in that, that starting 11. And, and I mean top quality that, um, you know, all of a sudden people going, oh, Everton, are, 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 uh, you know, their starting 11 can compete with anyone on their day. So I, um, I'm looking forward to the Merseyside derby because I just want to see you know, clop against Ancelotti and and uh, and see who ends up winning that one. I tell you, another team that um, you can't say they're under the radar because they're right at there up the top. But most people assume that after falling off a cliff last year, at the end of the last season, um, Leicester would probably continue on that path or, or struggle to to bounce back as as uh, impressively as they have. But I know you would have watched that game at close quarters, Simon, and it was it wasn't Leicester at their proactive best, but they sucked Manchester City in and got them good. Brendan Rodgers keeps proving people wrong, doesn't he? He does. <coughs> um, and but keeps <laughs> proving Pep Guardiola wrong because yeah. he doesn't seem to learn how to play against Leicester. <laughs> I remember, I think it was two seasons ago, maybe three seasons ago, Guardiola's first season when they, you know, they finished, I think, fourth. Um, and they played Leicester away, and he played with three centre-backs that night, Not one of which was a recognised central defender, and a high defensive line, and Leicester exploited that space in behind time and time and time again through the pace of Jamie Vardy, and in those days, Riyad Mahrez, who of course now is with Manchester City. Um, the same thing happened. Uh, <laughs> you can't play that way against a team that's got Jamie Vardy in it. Uh, and it just baffles me that, that, you know, Pep doesn't seem to 
to learn that. I don't know whether it's just obstinacy or whether he's becoming forgetful. <laughs> um, and, and clearly, you know, City have got some issues defensively. That is to take nothing away from Leicester. They're still a pretty good side, you know. They always fly under the radar, Leicester, for obvious reasons. They're not, you know, a massive club. But when you've got players like Vardy in your team, you've always got a chance. And he's still a terrific goal scorer. Uh, as he proved again at the weekend, all right, there were penalties thrown in there as well. But, um, yeah, I think Leicester will have another good season. Um, whether it'll be good enough for top four, I'm not sure. Because, as I say, I think Everton might be the, the team that, if, if somebody's going to break through into that upper echelon, maybe it's going to be Everton this year. But uh, Leicester will be more than nuisance value for a lot of, cl- lot of clubs, in my opinion. Yeah, I agree, there, Simon. I actually think that um, Leicester got it spot on. Of course, you know, with the the win, you say, yeah, of course they did. You know, they won five two. But I think that they limited the opportunities for Manchester City from the way they defended. I know Pep wasn't happy after the game, saying, look, they defended so deep and it was very difficult. Yeah, but you're Man City. That's what's going to happen when you're playing at home. Um, but I was very impressed with their defensive structure. I thought Leicester didn't allow them to have any space at all. The only thing that I'll give Pep a little bit of leeway for, he didn't have a number nine. You know, Jesus was out injured, Aguero's out injured. Um, so, you know, it, it, sometimes when you're playing against a packed defence like that, you need a striker that's got that little bit of quality in the box that smells where the ball's going to land and, and, you know, you create a chance out of nothing sort of thing. But defensively is their issue, Simon. They, they, you're right. I, and I don't even think it's just the back four. Um, I think it's also the midfield. I, I see Rodri, he's a good player, but he just doesn't seem to be able to cover space as quickly as um, some of the other midfielders like Fabinho for Liverpool. Because I, I look on all the goals and all the goals come from a player in the midfield having time on the ball to slip through a through ball. Now, that's not necessarily the back four. Yes, the back four have to adjust and they didn't do it so quick. Um, but uh, I, I just thought they got caught out in the midfield too easily. The Madison goal, he had unbelievable finish, but how much time did he have to look up, uh, see where <laughs> the space was, and then just bend it into that top corner? That's the midfield. That's not centre-backs. Yeah, yeah, absolutely correct. And I, I read a quote uh, yesterday, I think, that said about Rodri, you know, he, he doesn't seem to smell danger. Quite. No quickly enough. Now, Fernandinho, of course, did in his pomp. But Fernandinho is 34, nearly 35, and obviously coming towards the end of his his time, as wonderful a player as, he, as, as he's been at Manchester City. And, and Guardiola made the decision to to bring him off uh, and replace him with the, with the youngster, Delap, which attracts a lot of criticism as well. At that stage, I'm it was 1-1-2, ha- Simon. It was 1-1 one, one at that stage. Yeah. So I thought yeah. that was a bad uh, substitute. It was. It was, but you know that can happen. Yeah. Um, you, you know, coaches make bad decisions sometimes. You yeah, know, of course. Substitutions, <laughs> um, but I think over the overall pattern is the concerning one because uh, you know they paid an awful lot of money for for Rodri as well, uh, and he was supposed to be that successor to Fernandinho, and he's not quite hit the mark yet. Uh, you couple that with City's defensive issues. I know we'll probably talk about uh, Ruben Diaz in a moment, but uh, yeah, that, you know, already, you, as I said, you, you, you're looking at playing catch up to Liverpool. Pressure's on. They lose another game. Wow. I, I think that, I think it's going to start to mount on Guardiola. To be honest. All right. So what say you? What say you? this is Jamie Carragher on Ruben Diaz? This is the guy to replace Vincent Company 
if you like, 65 million pound, a huge figure again. But if this doesn't work, I think it's possibly the end of the PEP project. What wow. say you? <laughs> um, <clears throat> I say he's probably correct, to be honest. Um, it's not that City fans are, are losing patience with PEP per se. It's more that I think they want the team to evolve a little bit. Um, you know, the, the season before last, obviously, that 100 points, they won all the domestic trophies. How can you complain? Uh, all right, the Champions League is the big thing that City want to win. But last season, they were, you know, well off the pace in the Premier League, had the big opportunity in the Champions League and blew it with, with Pep really uh, to blame to a large degree for, for the tactics he used on that particular night against Lyon. And I think uh, the, the, the groundswell of opinion is that City have stood still while Liverpool have accelerated past them. Um, so that I think the fans would like to see a little bit of evidence that that's being addressed. Maybe Ruben Diaz is the man. He's certainly the right age, 23. He's big, he's strong, he's a leader. He's not the quickest. That's a problem. Um, Massive problem. Again, you know, that pacing behind, as we said, against Leicester City, but uh, he, is, he is a commanding figure, the, the sort of which that City haven't had since Vincent Company. So, obviously, personally, I, I hope he is the answer. I hope that Pep stays and that, uh, you know, they can, they can sort this out. But at the moment, I think it's a big question mark. Yeah, with the, we can't forget Laporte hasn't played uh, yet this season. So he, he's a massive in for them when he does play because uh, he's probably their best defender that they've got in the football club. But, Sometimes um, our only defender, John. <laughs> yeah, oh, that's true as well. But uh, look, I think it's a bit harsh on, on what Carragher's saying about the, the Pep project. I think the um, what Pep has always said, uh, and, and this could go along with the, his project, is that you know, your voice, if you're too long within a football club or too long within a team, it becomes a bit stale and, and you, your voice isn't as powerful. I think there might be signs there at the moment. That, that's, that's my personal feeling because uh, uh, he's a different sort of character to Klopp. Um, you know, Klopp's that, that lovable guy that, you know, he probably has a joke around with the players. I don't see that from Pep. I think Pep's always intense. So as a player, it, you can only handle that for so long and then you start to lose, you know, I can't handle this. Every day is so intense, whereas Klopp's a little bit different. Knows when to push, knows when to joke around and uh, it's probably that, you know, he's got that experience of being in clubs for long term as well. Pep hasn't. Pep's longest time he's been within a football club is this. This is the longest time. So it's going to be interesting to see how he plays out the season. Yeah, this is going to be a developing narrative. I can't believe it's uh, two games in when we're talking about it, but this is <laughs> this is how football works, and it's and it's going to continue. Hey, here's a topic we're going to talk about really quickly because it's driving all of us crazy, but we need to touch on it. And this is Roy Hodgson Simon saying, "I'm not angry today because of the handball rule, because we've lost the game, because of a decision. I'm disillusioned at the game that I have loved and served for so long. I'm finding very hard to recognise now because I'm not seeing anything that even looks remotely like a penalty." Mm. What say you? Uh, what say me is right. Uh, I, I think it's an absolute nonsense. How many more times are we going to tinker with these laws, particularly with regards to handball? Um, this is David Ellery at the uh, at IFAB um, and uh, his cohorts that, that keep messing. I think they've made something like 40-odd changes to the laws of the game. 
over the last couple of years, which is unbelievable. And fans don't know where they are. And clearly coaches and players don't know where they are either. Um, you know, the Eric Dyer one between Spurs and Newcastle in particular, if that's a penalty, I, I, I saw a tweet from Keith Hackett, uh, former mm, top mm. five referee, um, actually did the, the Centenary Cup final between Spurs and Man City in 1981. He said, if, if this is football today, then the game's finished. Um, now, that's obviously an extreme view, but it's if, if that's a penalty, no, I'm, it's just not. He's not even looking. No, he's not even looking. <laughs> uh, okay, it struck his hand, but, you know, it's not hockey. Um, I just think it's ludicrous. And yeah. I, I think fans are fed up of it with that and VAR. You know, you don't pay money when fans are allowed to go to the stadium. You don't pay money to sit and watch a referee on the sidelines looking at a little screen for two or three minutes going, oh, was it, wasn't it, was it, wasn't it? Let's get back to talking about footballers. I'm sick of talking about refs and decisions. I actually feel sorry for the referees here because they're actually prescribing the laws of the game as they've been told by their bosses. You know, you do what your employees tell you to do. Um, yeah, John, if it's you, interpretation uh, is all wrong as well. because you, That's you what know, we've you, got to have, right, is more you, interpretation. You see, yeah, you see that, um, that handball, the dire one, and then you, and you go and see the uh, equalising goal for Chelsea. Uh, have its, it, it hits his hand as well. It's, it's unintentional, but... Um, they, they give the goal. So what's the difference? I don't understand. And the week before, there was, an, there was another one with uh, Arsenal against West Ham when it, I thought it was a clearer penalty uh, because the distance the ball came from when I think it hit Gabriel in the hand. So I, I don't think they got it right. I, I would like it to be uh, get back to normal and say, look, if it's from a distance and the ball's going towards the goal and it hits your hand, even if it's not intentional, they should be given a penalty. But if, it's, uh, if you're about a metre away, where are you supposed to put your hands? When you're jumping mm. for a header, you can't jump with the, your hands behind your back. It's impossible, you know, because you lose balance. It's, uh, it, I think they need to clear it up. They need to go back to what the rules were like. I agree with Roy Hodgson because Roy Hodgson's been involved at coaching for 45 years, <laughs> some feet, mind you, and it, they have to listen to someone like Roy Hodgson. And he's not doing it. He goes, the week before, we got it our way, but I still don't think it's right. Even Steve uh, Bruce, even Steve Bruce, when he was the beneficiary of that Eric Dyer decision, said he had sympathy for, for Jose Mourinho. At the, I don't Scott, think he really did, though. though. <laughs> <laughs> he, he, he said the right taken things. That. <laughs> he said the right things. At the current projection, Sky Sports put out a... Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. A graphic uh, overnight that uh, over the last six years, the most penalties awarded for handball is 106. Uh, sorry, 18. Sorry, out of 106 awarded. If it goes at the current rate, we're going to go at 88 penalties for handball and 292 <laughs> penalties for the season. So there you've got it. The Premier League have asked this morning our time um, for the the. the IFAB and the governing bodies of, of, of rules in, in football to allow referees to use some more common sense. Yes, if the body is 
the arms are away from the body. Let's think about it. A player can't jump or run with their hands stuck to their sides. We need to have a little bit of common sense. Let's hope if they can make how many changes, did you say, Simon? 40 changes? Yeah, it was 40-odd 40, 40 changes. Can they just rewind one back? Wasn't there this thing about the natural silhouettes? That, that was yeah. a thing for a little while. You know, if, if your hands were or your arms were outside the natural silhouette of the body, then it was handball. If it was inside, it wasn't the place. Can we just go back to saying the ref goes, I think that's handball. Yeah. And we'll all have a bit of a whinge and then get on with it down. Yeah, that's right. Exactly. You know? Instead, we've got to have forensic dissection with multiple replays and, you know, lentil beans and bean sprouts. <laughs> 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 Try, try and pick. It's funny. La- last year, we didn't know the handball rule. <laughs> now we know the handball rule and we hate it. It's going to go on forever. But just common sense, please. Common sense. Common sense. Hey, finish this sentence, John. Something different now. Manchester United still scrambling to settle a squad within a week of deadline is... Uh, it, it's a, a massive issue for them. It shows where the, the club has been at for a long period in terms of making signings. Because now... I know Mourinho complained about this a while back when he was there and everyone just thought, oh, Mourinho's still complaining. That's, that's, that's Mourinho's style. But there, there is an issue because you can't have only made one signing as, and you're talking about Man United now, one of the biggest clubs in the world, um, in your off-season and then scrambling to get in another signing just before deadline. You, you clearly got issues uh, at the back. You clearly got issues um, Well, they want to strengthen their attacking uh, areas um, and you're Man United and you can't attract that I, I think that that's something to do within the club and in terms of who's in charge of the signings Why is that do you think Simon like the, the, the um, Borussia Dortmund knocked back another bid for Jaden Sancho today they're playing handball Wood, mm-hmm. Ed Woodward's going to almost negotiate through the deadline just to give Dortmund what they want if that ends up happening as it is is it a do you think it's a matter of um, players being sceptical of you know, playing for Solskjaer? Or is it the fact that other clubs know they can hold Woodward to ransom? What, what is it? I think the uh, the words that you said partway through that sentence would probably have some resonance with United fans. Uh, two words, Edward and Woodward. <laughs> um, he is not the most popular at Old Trafford. Uh, I, I think ever since the departure of uh, Sir Alex Ferguson, um, they've really struggled in, in this department. Um and I, I think the fans have fairly pointed the finger of blame at Woodward and said, look at his transfer dealings. They're, they're not good enough. And uh, they're right, in my opinion. And look, I think, you know, Manchester United are also suffering from the fact that these days, even though they're you know big, world-famous club, they're, they're not necessarily uh, in the Champions League every single year. Mm. Um, so their status has dropped a little bit. And I don't mean that in terms of, you know, players look at the club and, and go, oh, it's only Man United. It, it's, it's, a, it's a fact these days that I think the players, the very top players, they always want to play for the top clubs in the Champions League. And United are not quite there at the moment. You know, that sometimes they're top four, but, you know, sometimes they're not. Um, so their stature has been reduced and that makes it difficult to attract players because, you know, those players... Uh, don't necessarily have that certainty that they're going to be in the Champions League or that they're going to be challenging uh, for trophies, the big trophies that they want to be playing for. Um, so it, it's, it's a tough one for, for United. I, I think the only way through it is, is by 
you know, steadily building block by block, which is what, to be fair, Solskjaer has tried to do. They, were, you know, they certainly had a better season last, last year than the one before that. Um, give him some time, try to build uh, that longevity. that They gave Sir Alex Ferguson in a very completely different era many decades ago. Uh, that's the only way back to, to the top, really, for United. I don't think there's any silver bullet, particularly when Liverpool and, and City are, are so far ahead. Well, maybe not City not so much these days, but certainly Liverpool. It's interesting, John, you mentioned Everton's team before. There was a point on the weekend where I was looking at what changes a manager might make and I was looking at the benches and I actually thought, Ancelotti probably has more to turn to on his bench than Solskjaer does when he's looking down his bench at changing a game. And the only signing they made is in a position where they are blessed with two players in Donny van der Beek with uh, Bruno Fernandes and Paul Pogba. But before we move on from Manchester United, um, I just want to ask you about Pogba. Have you found his start to the season a little underwhelming given the combination he struck up with Fernandez last year. I feel like in and amongst all these other problems, Solskjaer's now got another pickle in getting Pogba back into full full stride. Yeah, I know a lot of people don't want to hear it because it looks like it's excuses. But, um, you know, they did go to the semi-final uh, against Sevilla. So they had a very short pre-season and they didn't play enough uh, games in pre-season. So it will take Man United, and I even think Man City and uh, and even Wolves, a few more weeks to really get going because they their season went for a lot longer, so they had a shorter pre-season. Um, and I think that's what's happening with, uh, with Pogba. I watched them on the weekend. They weren't good against Brighton. Brighton were clearly the better team, created the more chances. Uh, there were issues with Man United, but it was an important win for them because... Mm. You know, when you're not playing well, you need to still pick up points. That's what Man City didn't do on the weekend. So Man United will come out of that going, okay, you know, we know we're not at our best and we won't be there for another three or four games. But in the meantime, we still need to get points somehow. I don't think there'll be an issue. I think Pogba and Fernandez will get going again. At the end of last season, to watch them against Sevilla in their last game, they were very good, Man United. They, they deserve to beat Sevilla on that night. But, um, so they'll get back to it. I think that, uh, Fernandez is showing signs again on the weekend with the, the goal that he set up and then the penalty that he scored at the end. He's still a very, uh, influential player and a key player for him. And, and Pogba will be as well. Interesting point you raised, Johnny, about that, uh, short preseason, because we saw in the Bundesliga at the weekend, Bayern Munich lost yeah. the first time, um, in well over 12 months against Hoffenheim. So maybe that's got some resonance, you know, for teams right across Europe. PSG as well started slowly in France. Um, you know, I, I actually think it is, a, is an issue, um, but it's an issue that they knew was going to be there, but it's how you get through these initial stages. It's a lot easier in Germany to get away with it, Simon, because once they go on a run again, they'll probably catch up mm-hmm. um, and, and you know, be top of the table you know, with a number of points. But in the Premier League, it's very hard because you're playing against the Brighton uh, and mm-hmm. you expect it to win, but it's not that easy. And and that's where uh, I think your cities and your your Wolverhamptons losing four 0 to West Ham. Who would have picked that before the season started? But uh, I think that that short preseason has been an issue for a few clubs. Yeah, I think it's definitely um, been a part of that unpredictability that we've enjoyed in the Premier League so far this season. The Gig and Pod will be back in twenty seconds. Once you're done with this episode, though, take a moment to look up two sharp reds. Socceroos great Mark Schwarzer is joined by Ollie Geel to talk about the lighter side of world football with a real focus on the day-to-day of the Premier League. Two Sharp Reds from Optus Sport, available where you get your podcasts. Now, back to the Gegenpod. 
Hey, Simon, we're looking forward to reading your work back on the Optus Sport app again in the coming weeks and months. And But unfortunately, the first article is a bit of a sober note. And we're talking about mm. the, the um, unpredictability and how enjoyable the Premier League has been. But beneath that, there's a few issues rumbling in English football. And, and they're serious issues. They're talking to the, the future of the clubs at the heartbeat of the game over there. Talk to us a little bit about what you discovered in putting this feature piece together that will be out for everyone to read uh, later this week. Yeah, look, obviously it's a, it's a very sobering uh, tale of uh, financial hardship and um, for some clubs, and, and the, the club that I've focused on specifically is Macclesfield Town, uh, who tragically no longer exists, mm. uh, a club that was founded in 1874 and they were wound up in the, in the high court in England just uh, a week or so ago for debts totaling no more than half a million pounds, which is what you know, the monthly wage of Kevin De Bruyne or something like that, um, which is really sad. And uh, so I've spoken to some of the Macclesfield Town uh, supporters, but obviously this speaks to a, a bigger problem, particularly during COVID, uh, of the fact that the entire English pyramid structure is under grave threat. Uh, and that's uh, a real concern, I think, for a lot of people. We've seen Southend United, uh, Wigan Athletic in real financial trouble at the moment. Berry, of course, have already gone. Same with uh, Macclesfield. Bolton Wanderers survived by the skin of their teeth. Uh, and only earlier on this week, uh, one of the MPs over in the UK, Damien Collins, actually wrote to the Culture Secretary and the Sports Minister and said, look, basically, if you don't put together a, a, a package like you've done for the arts, then a lot of these clubs are going to collapse mm. because they're on the brink. And, of course, there's no money coming in because of you know, no supporters at the gates. They've lost sponsorship, same as every other business. We know that. Um, but they're really doing it tough. And I think, you know, England in particular with 92 professional clubs is pretty unique in the world of football. Uh, that could all come tumbling down within a matter of weeks uh, due to, you know, coronavirus and the associated problems. And it will be... A tragedy in my opinion so that's what my my piece is about um might not make for particularly nice reading but uh hopefully interesting for for optus readers there's 20 million um government 20 million pound government package was announced wednesday morning uh, our time here uh, from the government for national league clubs can you see in your research was there any outcome was there any sign is there any hope that premier league clubs for example might come to the party or are they going to uh, feast upon their, you know, what they've got, and still, you know, leave the lower tiers to fight for themselves. It, it's a, it's a tricky one. I personally, I think the Premier League clubs do have some sort of a duty uh, to their lower league counterparts because it, it's all part of the same ecosystem. Um, I know that the Premier League clubs have been in discussions with the English Football League uh, clubs and their representatives to see if they can try and help. But of course, the Premier League clubs are, d are doing it pretty tough as well. Different you know, scales, of course, and they've got the big TV deal to help see them through. But um, you know, equally, they've been losing an awful lot of money as well. So, so it's a pretty tough situation, um, which is why... You know, when Boris Johnson, the Prime Minister, announced that fans were going to be let back into the stadiums, everybody said, well, hallelujah, you know, at least we'll get some uh, gate money coming through and merchandise sales and food and beverage, etc. But with the second wave, the, the second mm. spike of, of the virus in the UK, that's now been ruled out until probably March at the very earliest, and I think probably later than that. So... 
that really brings it into sharp focus, I think, uh, for those lower league clubs in particular. And uh, yeah, I hope they can put together a rescue package because that would be tragic if we were to lose, you know, not just one or two clubs, but maybe 10, 20. Interesting because football is always our escape and football is our, our passion or keeps us going. Um, but here we are in Australia with all the issues that we talk about day to day. And you see the pinnacle of what we look at as the sport, you know, in England with its own issues, it just shows you, and like every walk of life at the moment, there are so many interesting paths to navigate. But as we turned our attention to the local game, because it would be remiss of me not to talk, of that with, talk about that with you two on the show today, um, there are still so many challenges and so many topics that we're all talking about at the coffee shops and um, or on the coffee shops, on the phone at least at the moment, <laughs> given to the current circumstances. But I look, John, at some of the things developing at the moment about how we generate income for our game here and how we um, revitalize that going forward. And one of the things that has been put forward is uh, an imminent white paper on the domestic transfer system and then also improving our smart in the international uh, marketplace as well, um, including making sure that our lower tier clubs, our NPL clubs are getting the adequate compensation that hasn't been there for so many years. Um, your thoughts on that and, and, and the, as we start to turn our attention to issues uh, here? Yeah, look, I've spoken about domestic transfer system for a number of years now. I think that it's, um, look, it's not going to generate that much money at the start. Let's be honest, because the most money you have is more through international transfers. So, but uh, what it does give, it gives the, the NPL clubs, but also the A-League clubs, um, you know, they know that uh, they need to actually produce players if they want to generate money that way. So um, I think the lower clubs, you know, we, we talk about the Mariners, they might change, you know, once they get taken over, if they do get taken over very soon. Um, you know, if they're producing good players from their academy and then able to sell them off to a Sydney FC or a Melbourne Victory or whatever else, they're actually generating money back into their club. So then the fans actually can see what they're trying to do. At the moment, we couldn't see what these clubs were trying to do, where, where they're going with it. Plus, it gives the opportunity then to play younger players um, that we say that younger players don't get enough games. Um, and then, you know, the, the biggest sides that are challenging for the title can loan those players back down to the teams that um, don't really have the, the financial uh, capacity or don't have the squads to actually uh, play certain players. So I, I actually think that's a good idea. Um, it worked in the past. We have to make sure that... Um, you know, they do it properly and, uh, and I can see it that it would be a positive for the game. The, the, the classic example of that was a few years ago, wasn't it, when Anthony Caceres came through the ranks of the Mariners and Manchester City <laughs> signed him <laughs> and immediately loaned him out to Melbourne City and they paid a transfer fee of $325,000. Now, at the time, everybody rightly said that's against the rules and it was, but... Morally, was it wrong? You know, Casera's got to move to a bigger uh, A-League club or, or uh, an A-League club with a, with a link to a big European club. So there was potential for him there. The Mariners got 325000 bucks for, for developing the player. That's how the ecosystem works, isn't it? Even internally within the A-League. So I, th I think it's a great thing. I guess the problem might be people say, well, the richer clubs will now dominate. Well, they do anyway. That's right. And isn't it better, rather than having players just moving, you know, from club to club to club uh, for nothing every single season, if there's value in that player, at least let the smaller clubs profit from 
that. I think it's a great idea. Exactly. And what we'll end up seeing, we'll end up seeing uh, less players rotating clubs as much because the the clubs who actually sign them on longer-term deals, they won't sign them on a year deal or a two-year deal because they don't want to let them go for free. Even if it's something like five grand, Simon, you know, it's it's still money coming back within your club. So I think that's a a massive positive. I think it's a positive uh, not only for the A-League clubs, NPL clubs that really concentrate and focus on their academies they get something back um, and then once you start to put in the national second division I think it will work really well I, I think it's it's a step in the right direction that's for sure so that's when we have that um, system of movement but before we get to that we've got a few issues to sort out in terms of just the the, the collective bargaining agreement itself for the actual contracts of players and when where who why how etc etc um, what's the latest you're hearing on on that, Simon? And what do you want to see, or how do you think this needs to play out or be resolved? Because at the moment, there's a lot of uncertainty for players as simply looking after their own careers. What do they do next for the security of their futures? Oh, it could be another hour on this podcast. Um, <laughs> Lucky I booked you in for six hours each. And we're in a good spot here. <laughs> Sorry, listener. I don't know whether there is a, a solution that... that everybody is is happy with with regards to the CBA. It may well be that, and this is what it increasingly looks like, that we're going to have a year without a CBA. And maybe the players are negotiating individually with with their clubs uh, with regards to their contracts. Maybe that's the best potential outcome. I'm not sure the PFA would agree uh, because that sort of cuts them out of the uh, equation. But it's, you know, I, I have sympathy on both sides uh, in this argument because obviously the players want some security. They've got mortgages to pay. They've got families to feed, same as everybody else. But the clubs have seen their revenues uh, slashed dramatically. You know, with the TV deal has been halved. There's the coronavirus. Um, sponsors have walked away. You know, the, the game's in, got some difficult issues to resolve. So the clubs are probably saying, well, even if we wanted to pay the, the players, uh, you know, or, or get a, a CBA that everybody agrees with, we can't afford it. Something has to give sooner or later. I did actually like the PFA's initial suggestion of, as opposed to this 30% cut that the clubs were trying to impose upon certain players, I, I didn't mind the PFA's suggestion of staggered cuts over the next three years, which, uh, you know, they, they actually thought would be attractive to investors because they could see that the costs of the clubs were actually going down over the next two or three years rather than up. But anyway, the clubs don't want that either. So there's no easy solution. Um, if, if, the, if, the, if there is no CBA, then maybe it's down to individuals negotiating with clubs. Um, now, Johnny might be able to tell me better than, uh, than I know. In terms of overseas football, do they have things such as CBAs? Or is that a uniquely Australian thing? I, 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 it's, it's a uniquely Australian thing that I recall. I can't recall ever the, mm. having a CBA or being involved in anything of that other than here in Australia when, with our national team. But um, we did have players union uh, over in, in the UK, also in Spain, that helped out a lot. Um, I agree with you, Simon. I feel for both parties. I feel for the clubs and the owners, and I also feel for the players because the players, in my understanding, got told before they went into the hub, before they signed off on that cut that they did actually get uh, to finish the season off, um, let's take this hit now, and then your contracts that you've got will be 
uh, recognised for next season, the season after the ones. So they're, they're coming out of it going, well, you told us this and now our contracts aren't valid anymore. What's the use of having a contract? So that's where the whole issue is. Now, I think that I don't mind having the league independent of the FFA. I think that's a good idea. But I think there needs to be an independent board, independent structure. So there should be someone that's actually running that league that's not directly involved in the football clubs and not directly involved with the players and they do what's best for the game moving forward. Because at the moment, I just can't see any party agreeing with what's going on. And, uh, and, and, and that's where we're going to have a massive issue because the players now are leaving mm. and they're going to India. Now, why are they going to India? The money's not that much different. They just feel more security than what they're seeing here in Australia. Now, I think that's, that's an issue that we're, we're going to have for the near future until they get this right. Totally agree. I think if the, uh, you're right that if the league is about to become independent and we keep hearing, <laughs> we've heard for the last two or three years that the league is about to become independent, but if it's going to happen, then that structure needs to be put in place because uh, at the moment it's it's all a bit of a, a sort of a hodgepodge, isn't it? I, I guess Paul Letter is nominally the, the spokesperson for the APFCA, the most difficult acronym in, in world. <laughs> um and, you know, Greg O'Rourke is the head of the A-League, but he, he's still technically employed by the FFA. You know, who's making the decisions? Then you've got, you know, other owners that go off and seem to do their own things, mentioning no owners, <clears throat> Tony Sage. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's, I don't know, it just all seems very haphazard. And I, I, I think, you know, the players obviously feel that, which is mm. why so many of them are heading off overseas. But they've got to get it sorted sooner or later. Yeah, I was going to ask that as well, John. If, if you are a player right now, forget about player coming from overseas. If you're a player in Australia right now, um, dreaming of being in the A-League or being in the A-League and working out what happens next, um, what does go through your mind right now? What are, You don't even know when the next season is, right? Let alone how much you're, you can potentially earn and you know, what, what, um, what structures will be around you. I totally get the players uh, wanting to leave at the moment because uh, they they need security in their life as well. They, they have mortgages to pay. They've got families to support. Um, and so when they see that no one really knows when the season is going to start, uh, if their contracts, uh, you know, w- what's going to happen with their contracts. So I can understand them. You know, James Donachie, the perfect example. Uh, he's still contracted by uh, Newcastle Jets, but he doesn't know... Uh, what, what's going to be happening in the near future. So he's gone out on loan to FC Goa for a year um, because he knows the season's going to start in November. It's going to finish in March. He's going to get his pay. And uh, and no matter what, you know, he, he's going to come back and have that security for his family. So um, I, I get the players. Some players will have it easier than others because they will already have been scouted by these overseas clubs. But the ones that are, are staying here will definitely not be feeling comfortable. On a positive note, more positive note, um, and we'll pick up those conversations as they go along over the next couple of weeks and months. But on a more positive note, yesterday was a, a, a massive day for Australian football because of the announcement of Tony Gustafsson as the new Matildas coach on a four-year cycle. What a ticket this is. This is uh, the responsibility of a couple of Olympic campaigns and the coveted home Women's World Cup where you know the, the aspirations of a nation um, will be leaning on this experience. Um, your reaction to that appointment 
uh, Simon, um, to a man who already has spoken about embracing the culture and, uh, and, and learning about Australian football and embracing that with what he knows. Um, what were your reactions? Uh, you, you missed out the Asia, the Women's Asian Cup as well. So, uh, yeah, it's a heck of a, a few years that he's got ahead of him. Uh, look, at, you know, on, on, the surface, uh, on the surface of it, it looks a great appointment. I, I don't know Tony Gustafsson. I've never met him. Um, I've looked at his CV, same as probably everybody else. Um, tick, tick, tick. Uh, you know, can he get the best out of the girls? It's as simple as that. Um, what did concern me a little bit was, uh, I, I did read an article, I think it was on FTBL, and there were two former Matildas, Angela Yanotta and Trixie Tag, uh, who sort of urged the Matildas to get behind whoever the FFA chose as the head coach, which reading between the lines suggests to me that there's a little bit of player power involved in terms of, you know, who the players want to be the coach. Well, I don't know about you, but I've never chosen my own boss. I can tell you if I had done, I might not have chosen one or two that I worked for. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, you know, I mean, you can't have the tail wagging the dog. Uh, I'm not necessarily saying that's the case with, with Gustafsson because I don't know. But, um, yeah, I just thought that that article was very interesting and, and speaks volumes as to you know, what we've sort of heard around the traps over the last 12, 18 months. But I wish him all the very best. Fantastic period ahead uh, for the Matildas and for, and for the women's game in Australia, including that hosting of the Women's World Cup. And let's hope he can, uh, you know, lift them to, to greater heights. He's certainly got the ability in terms of the players. See, that's what we are hearing, Dave, um, around the traps. I'm not sure if it's totally true or not, but uh, when there's a little bit of noise, then it seems to be that uh, someone is talking. It's that they want fire. Yeah, that's right. They wanted a, a, a male coach. Now, um, I don't know the reasons why, um, and, and I find it a bit strange that there is that much player power. You, you'd think that if whoever is the, 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 you know, on the technical board uh, to select the coach should be the ones that have the final decision. Um, you know, it, it, they should be the ones that are deciding. It shouldn't be the players. That, the players should play for whoever they appointed. And, and in my career as a player, um, and in some clubs I probably had a, a little bit more power than other clubs, but I never, ever had a say of who was going to be the coach. That mm. was up to the board or up to the chairman or up to whoever the selection panel was. So I find that a bit strange. That can be dangerous in my opinion. Um, the other thing is on Tony Gustafsson, I wish him all the best. I hope he's the right person for the job. Uh, there's always going to be question marks because he was the assistant uh, for the uh, US national team. The US by far had the best players um, and I watched the, the last tournament very closely. Um, so, you know, there's still going to be question marks on how he will do with our national team, uh, with the Matildas. But my big question is, if he fails at the Olympics or at the Asian Cup, are we still going to take that risk in taking him to our home World Cup? I don't think we can if he does fail. If he, if he doesn't, then, of course, then, uh, you know, we're, we're set up nicely for a, our home World Cup because it's too much of a... Um, a massive opportunity. If we lose that opportunity, it's it's going to hurt us for years to come. Now, I I think that they that they've said yeah, it's a four year deal. 
Um, but I'll be wondering and watching closely if he doesn't do well at the Olympics or the Asian Cup, what they will do. He's under the pump already, Johnny. He's been in the job 24 hours. Well, you know His what? His contract hasn't even kicked in yet. Yeah, you, you know, I will say, Simon, this is the biggest job I think we've had in our history because we're hosting a Women's World Cup. Mm, yeah. We're hosting a World Cup. And uh, I didn't say it, and I do believe it, though. James Johnson said it. This is not a golden generation. This is a platinum generation. So when you're saying this is a platinum generation, you're there to win the Women's World Cup. And so is he the one to do it? Well, let's hope so. Let's hope so. It's a big responsibility he's got. And uh, January 1, it all kicks off for him as we build that road through to 2023. I could talk to you guys for hours. I was joking. I haven't got you on board for six hours. But what I will do is promise to get you both back together as we can discuss this, this, uh, you know, the issues here at home further. Because that is an issue itself. People need to be discussing these issues here in Australia. And we will do that in, in the coming weeks, if you'll come back, if you'll come back. Um, so we're going to wrap up with a quick look ahead to the weekend because, well, as we said, the beauty is we've still got this fabulous, fabulous, fabulous football fair with the Premier League. And it kicks off at the viewer-friendly time slot again of 9.30pm Saturday night, Australian Eastern Standard Time, with Chelsea hosting Crystal Palace. Oh, God, Chelsea can get through that game and actually break down <laughs> Crystal Palace's defence uh, with all their attacking riches and not get done on the counter-attack by Wilfred Zaha, please. Um, and that will obviously be following countdown to kick off at 8pm with Rich, Johnny, Bridgie, all the guys, all the gang. Um, Everton at Brighton, midnight kickoff. Leeds United against Manchester City, 3.30am. Marcelo Bielsa against Pep Guardiola. I can't wait to see what that produces. And Sunday night, that kick rounds out with Newcastle hosting Burnley at 6 a.m. Sunday evening, 10 p.m., after um, Rich takes you through with the guys again uh, in the lead-up, Leicester City host West Ham. Then Southampton host West Brom at 10 p.m. as well. Wolves host Fulham at midnight. Arsenal host Sheffield United at midnight. And then it rounds out with Manchester United against Tottenham and Aston Villa against Liverpool. It is a proverbial feast Gentlemen, what do you pick out from that feast of football? Simon, to you first. Well, obviously, the, the Leeds-Man City game is of particular interest uh, uh, for me, but I think for a lot of people as well, because of the two coaches in, involved, as you mentioned, Bielsa uh, and Guardiola. And you know, clearly, Guardiola is under the pump. Um, Ellen Road is a, is a tough place to go, even though a little bit less so because there'll be no fans inside the stadium. Uh, but Bielsa Ball is perfectly capable of causing City problems. You know, it caused Liverpool problems on, on week one. So I think it could be an absolutely rip-roaring game of football. Both teams committed to attack. So I'm certainly looking forward to that one. Um, intrigued by the issues at Fulham already. Uh, three games played, three defeats. The vice chairman promising to sign players on Twitter before the transfer window closes and apologising for the performances. Scott Parker's not happy with that. Oh dear. It's all going to end in tears, that, isn't it? Again, a craving cottage, you fancy. Yeah, they're in big trouble there. What about you, John? Man United Spurs. Uh, I think that Mourinho going back to uh, a former club and um, just to see you know, how Man United... Uh, Know, start actually playing some of the football that we saw towards the end of last season. I think it's, a, it's going to be a tough game for them. And I expect Spurs to continue on playing the good football they've been playing so far this season under Mourinho. A poor old Sheffield United going to get a goal at Arsenal and break their drought there, Simon? Uh, I don't know. Um, they've had a poor start, haven't they? Even though I don't think they've played particularly badly. But... Uh, 
Uh, I think Johnny mentioned as we were warming up for the the show, you know, the second season syndrome, and it has struck plenty of clubs in the past. They were terrific last season. And I note this week, uh, defender Jack O'Connell, who was sort of on the fringe of the England um, squad, or certainly being talked about, and rumour is he could be out for the season with a knee injury. So, you know, that's, that's a further blow for Chris Wilder. Um, if anybody can pull him out of trouble, I think it's him because he's just had a, a terrific few years and very, very well respected at Bramall Lane. I hope they don't get all trigger happy if, if they stay down in the bottom three because he's done such a good job for them. But you know what happens? You know, Claudio Ranieri wins the most romantic fairy tale Premier League title ever with Leicester, and within six months, he's sacked. That's football, particularly in England. <laughs> Football. It's why we've got something to talk about. Not every week, every single day. And we will hopefully for a long, long time to come. Gents, thank you so much for your time. Simon, your, your coffee on, on our Zoom chat has made me very thirsty. So I think I'm going to call it there because I'm ready for mine. Cheers. Um, an absolute pleasure talking to you both. And uh, thanks for covering a, a, a huge range of issues as well. And as I said, if you'll be back, we'll, we'll do it all again soon. Cheers, thanks. Dave. Cheers, John. Thanks, Simon. Thanks, Dave. Absolute pleasure to all of you out there. I hope you enjoyed that podcast this week. A little bit longer, but lots to talk about. And as ever, until the next episode of The Gagan Pod, enjoy your football. 